Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. In this episode, we are going to talk with Daniel Trier, professor of theology at Wheaton College, about a wide range of topics, but particularly we're going to talk about theological interpretation of Scripture, as he has written an introductory book on that. Uh, he's written other books on the Trinity and the Church. He's written a book on evangelical hermeneutics with Kevin Van Hooser. Easily can find these things on Amazon. Uh, he is a fantastic scholar, a good man, and a long-suffering Detroit sports fan. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a Tigers fan and a Lions fan in a little bit of a slump for those two franchises. I myself, being a Cowboys fan and a Rangers fan, can relate to him. Let's so talk about that a little bit. And then we just talk about how theological interpretation of the Scripture has benefited the church, the ways that it uh, can go poorly, because it is a sort of type of interpretation that doesn't have a lot of uh, guardrails, doesn't have a lot of rules to it necessarily. But Dan tries to give us some examples of the ways we can do that better. We also talk about some forthcoming books that he has on Christology. And uh, just a fun conversation, really uh, had a good time with him, laughed a lot about all kinds of different things, even talked about his house fire that he recently had. He's very uh, upbeat and joyful about that, all things considered. So I am looking forward to you guys hearing this conversation that we had at ETS back in November. This episode is presented by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about new releases and new things in their catalog. You can also go to csbible.com and visit the Christian Standard Bible, who's our other uh, sponsor for this podcast. Now, our conversation with Dan. But first, no big deal. Here in a fancy little conference room with Dan Trier, the long-suffering Tigers fan. How was your How was your last season with the Tigers? I was Six, uh, actually games? quite pleased. We didn't lose a hundred. <laughs> that was my benchmark. We succeeded by two games. <laughs> yeah, being a Rangers fan, we both had the uh, the same uh, last eight years of just nothingness. Yes. So you know the Rangers. Uh, we were talking about it beforehand, but the Rangers in two thousand nine. Uh, went to the World Series, got swept, or they lost 4-1 to the Giants and might as well have gotten swept. Then next year, Tigers and Rangers played each other in the ALCS. We went and lost to the Cardinals in maybe the worst uh, way possible with Nelly Cruz. All I had to do was catch it, and we would have won the World Series. And then the next year, you guys played the card, uh, played the Giants, and it was a sweep. Yes. Yeah, sorry to bring that up. Um, so we've both been through the last eight years of just kind of every once in a while, you're, you know, Tigers look good every once in a while, the Rangers look good every once in a while, and it just never, never turns out. We, we have the choice at this point of being old and good or of being young and bad. And which one do you vote for? Well, I think we've decided to be uh, a little bit of both. Uh, middle-aged and bad is where we seem yeah. to be at at the moment. Well, every time the Rangers do that, they end up being 81 and 81, and then it's, you know, then n- nothing happens. Yes. And you just want them to tank. <laughs> Same as a Cowboys fan right now. The Cowboys are, are just mediocre every year, and it's just like – you want to be mediocre, or can we? Do, let's just blow it up and start over. You know. So. Well, since the Lions have uh, let me experience what zero and sixteen is like, yeah. I would say eight and eight is better than that. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, one of the things I want to talk about was theological interpretation of scripture. Um, when I was in seminary, I had begun to when I was doing exegetical papers, when I was teaching and preaching, I felt like I was doing something I didn't know what to call it. And then I took a class in seminary on theological method and prolegomena. We read Lindbeck and Fry and 
all these different, you know, Moises Silva and all these different books. And your book, um, Introducing Theological Interpretation of Scripture, which was, that came out in 2008. Is yes. I read that and I said, this is this is the thing that I've been wanting to do or trying to do or sometimes do okay. And you finally gave me some sort of a word for it. I had not quite ever come across it. And so I, I just fell in love with that book immediately. And uh, I have read it probably 10 times since then. And But, you know, it's been 10 years since you wrote that book. And TIS is interesting. I was talking with uh, a scholar a little while back who kind of said, you know, he's like, I'm not sure if I want to use the TIS label anymore because it seems like anybody can use it. It's really malleable. So what are some of your thoughts just generally on TIS, kind of uh, where you started doing that project and why you did that project and just sort of how you've seen some of that play out over the last few years? I think that uh, we probably need to make some kind of distinction between a broad and a a more narrow sense of the term or between a more generally descriptive sense of the term and then more – active, ideologically strong senses of the term. So I think that some of us as evangelicals got interested in theological hermeneutics, theological exegesis, and eventually the terminology started to stabilize around TIS because we were trying to provide a theological description of what evangelicals in many respects were already doing, especially in the realm of what we might call biblical theology. And as we were trying to support um, what was happening in evangelical biblical theology that was exciting to us, helping us to read the whole Bible together in light of its redemptive historical storyline and so forth, it seemed to need a stronger theological hermeneutical foundation in certain respects, or at least a more particularly Christian theological foundation than simply appealing to secular theorists, be they Hirsch or whoever else. So I think that's the more deflationary sense of the term is, um, for, for those of us as evangelicals, describing to some degree and supporting theologically what was already happening. But then there are different uh, reformist components or agendas. Um, TS has already had its own reformation. Well, <laughs> uh, or, you know, People, are inc- people who use the terminology probably have ways then that they want to change or expand or intensify right. aspects of what happens in evangelical biblical theology. So I think for uh, some of us that would be helping canonical and biblical theological thematic levels of reading to be more richly Trinitarian – not just to deal with more explicit themes and structures in the Bible, but also to work at the doctrinally implicit level of what we must say in order for the more explicit themes and structures to make sense and so forth. Trying also to read the Bible for the church's ethical and cultural life today. What do you do to apply biblical theology to questions like technology when you're not going to have tons of explicit uh, material to right. work with. Right. Um, that's another aspect, I think, um, of the agenda. So certainly there are uh, non-evangelicals or some would say post-liberals or the like um, that we are in conversation with who may take more radically uh, reader-centered approaches than, than some of us. I don't think it's... Um, problematic for us to be in conversation with them, learning from them, also offering constructive 
concerns and criticisms in return, any more than it was for evangelical biblical scholars to engage the wider academic discipline of biblical theology uh, over the last uh, few decades. There's always been a mix of plurality and um, disagreement and tension along with productive conversation uh, in both realms. So the, the ambiguities over what TIS means I don't necessarily see as problematic. I'm not wedded to the terminology. I'm wedded to certain ideas. Even though you published the book, you can still, maybe you could do a new edition where you give it a well, different name if you need to. <laughs> yes. I mean, um, you may have read the book 10 times, but you didn't buy it 10 times. That's I can, a fair point. I can tell you that from looking at the sales numbers. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so what do you think, taking a step into that sort of in your, in your mind? So I think, you know, even pre-modern exegesis, you know, you, you've said this before, uh, even that was not monolithic. You look at the patristic right. period, you look at, you know, quote unquote allegory or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, I mean, you have Augustine and Origen and, and Athanasius taking the same text and saying wildly different things about them. So it's not surprising that if you get into theological interpretation, that's kind of what you run into. So what do you, what do you think kind of in your opinion, what are some more heinous versions of it? Some, some weird, just like, I just don't think, I don't even want to claim that. I don't think that's helpful. And what do you think is a more kind of uh, rich, uh, biblical, doctrinal, dogmatic sort of way to do it that, that you would say, this is, if, if I were going to say, get into TIS, this is the, the way I would, I would want to uh, instruct people to do it? Well, if you look at the Brazos theological commentary on the Bible, which I uh, have participated in, um, I think that volumes like Stanley Hauerwas's on Matthew are more reader-oriented. Um, In terms of reader response, this yes, means what I want it to mean. Um, more daring and sometimes less textually disciplined than um, I'm inclined to. Although hermeneutically in that process, Stanley said some things that I needed to learn from as I then worked on my own volume. By contrast, I think volumes that a lot of people would say are textually stronger are are more clearly and consistently driven by the text and its words, uh, and its theological agendas uh, might be Peter Lighthart's on First and Second Kings, um, Joe Mangina's on the Book of Revelation. Um, those would be a couple examples of volumes that have gotten fairly high praise, even though they too have been written by theologians. I'm part of a advisory board now, and I've signed on to do a volume someday in the future for something called the International Theological Commentary yeah. with T&T Clark. Mike Allen and Scott Swain and others are involved with leading that effort. The goal is to be less one way or the other, less either, you know, strong version of TIS that tends to go in a reader-oriented uh, sort of direction or less... Um, so exegetically focused in the technical or uh, more narrowly textual sense that Christian doctrine doesn't play a substantial role in how the text is engaged. The proof of the pudding will only be in the eating in time, but we would like the volumes in that series to show that both can be done with some degree of facility. You don't necessarily have to prioritize one or the other. Yeah, so I, re I reviewed uh, Lightheart's Revelation volume for Themelios, and I thought it was really helpful. I mean, the, the most unique thing I thought about it was this is probably the most just pure 
Retristic reception. I mean, he had Trinitarianism everywhere in that in that <laughs> book, which which uh, you know, doing writing a dissertation on the Trinity and Revelation, I was very thankful for. On the other hand, one of the things I struggled with a little bit was there was there was almost there was very little background historical critical exegetical not exegetical is probably not the right word, but some of the background stuff. And I thought, you know, there there are places here, uh, even with the Son of Man. Uh, the seven spirits, some of these things that come out of Jewish apocalypticism that would actually strengthen the theological argument in some in some sense. And I thought he kind of missed on some of that stuff, even though I thought, I mean, it's it's probably a top five revelation commentary out. I mean, it's 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 really fantastic. So, but I say all that to say, how do you think the historical critical should play into that? Do you think I'm being a little too unfair there? Do you think uh, we shouldn't be expecting that much? I, I hate the book reviewers that say this is how <laughs> I would have written it, but I did. I did think there's some ways that you could have actually even strengthened your theological argument, even into the patristic, uh, some of the patristic stuff, if you had, had looked a little bit more at the backgrounds and some of that. So, what do you what do you think about that and how that plays into right. all of it? So, uh, having not actually seen that particular commentary yet, um, to, I'll talk at a slightly more general level. I think any commentary is going to have relative strengths and weaknesses, sure. quite aside from the stated method uh, or nature of the series. Commentators are just stronger and weaker at different things yeah. and have particular interests. Peter's interests are always literary, theological, and um, comparatively less historical by a certain definition of that word. And so um, – you know, we need to distinguish between issues with "quote unquote" TIS as such, and then issues with particular yeah. commentators and commentaries. I think that, um, and I, yeah, we don't have to single him out, but just sort right. Of that but idea. for the sake of illustration, I think that the kind of relevance that aspects of historical context or, or original historical context have varies by the particular text. Okay, yeah. So in principle, do we want to engage it? Absolutely. But I think the ways in which it will be relevant um, may very well differ um, in terms of the degree to which it's going to bring um, distinctive insight. I think a lot of TIS people are not trying to say, I'm certainly not, that um, historical critical tools or interest in orig aspects of original historical context are irrelevant to or a hindrance to good interpretation. Yeah, you make a good point in your book about, hey, historical, critical, exegetical stuff is, yeah, is part of the deal. Yeah, I think it's a matter of relative balance or or imbalance. Yeah. And I think it's also a difference between historical, critical tools or contexts uh, that historical criticism studies and historical criticism as an overarching research paradigm or model of vocation. Right. When historical criticism is the fundamental thing that I see myself doing as a scholar interpreting, then you can't help but run into major issues with nature and grace in terms of how you fundamentally understand yourself as a theologian or biblical scholar, what you're doing in the act of interpretation, who's speaking and when and where and to whom and so forth. Um, that's historical criticism as an overall research paradigm or vocational model. Uh, I think a lot of TIS criticisms are really um, launched, at least when they're launched well, they're launched at that totalizing sense of historical criticism right. rather than at particular 
tools or at the importance of original historical context in the act of interpretation, which I think a lot of us would still want to acknowledge. Yeah, so expand on that a little bit. You have that article, I can't remember where it was published now, on the relationship between TIS and biblical theology. I think it's called Biblical Theology and or TIS or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And I've read that a few times as well. Expand on that a little bit, because I think that's kind of where I'm going is sort of, okay, now what do we do? What do we do with biblical theology and TIS and how do they relate and how do we use the tools? And what are some, maybe some helpful couple of tips that you would give whenever you're, you're dealing with all that stuff? Well, we talk a lot with the doctoral students at Wheaton about the distinction between all that you do in studying a text or in appealing to a text to teach in a classroom or to preach in the church or any number of different venues versus what you may write about in any particular scholarly um, setting or publication, right? So I think in an ideal world, um, an interpreter of a text in general will do justice to its historical, literary, and theological contexts. Yeah. And corresponding to those contexts, there will be historical, literary, and theological forms of analysis and criteria for interpretive judgments. And the ideal interpreter will, in a general sense, balance those and in a particular sense, relate them in the ways they need to be related for the particular text. Uh, I'm supposed to write on uh, Philippians in the ITC. Um, in certain texts, I'm going to focus very much on the words, the way the words go, and what sort of doctrines might be brought to bear on understanding those words or emerge from uh, understanding those words. But I recognize that to write about Philippians even because of some of the words of the text themselves, I have to understand issues of citizenship, honor, shame, empire, and um, the particular kind of um, colony that, you know, Philippi was, and and on and on. So I will have to um, address any number of issues of historical context to do justice to the, the biblical theology that's there. But it may vary passage by passage as to how determinative particular strands of historical research are going to be. If I can give one quick counterexample, when I was working on Ecclesiastes, it seemed to me that the sheer number of competing proposals regarding its provenance, especially its sort of ideological and philosophical provenance, whether it was Greek or Persian or Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, at a certain point precisely out of respect for history – and for the kinds of historical judgments that we can make with relative confidence and the kinds of historical judgments that we can't make with confidence but that land us in speculation, I needed to find a way to interpret the text without having my interpretation depend on a particular theory about the text's provenance because there were enough of them and the strands of evidence for them struck me as thin enough that out of respect for history, I needed not to have interpretation depend in any substantial way, at least at the macro level, on some kind of theory about exactly what philosophy Ecclesiastes was engaging and when and where. But it wasn't because I was being a doctrinaire theologian that I made that move. It was because of respect for history and what it can and can't tell us, depending on the kinds of evidence that we have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you talk in the book, too, about kind of Bart's sort of reintroduction of this method in a lot of ways into uh, mainstream thought, evangelicalism, whatever. 
um, kind of how he sort of was drawing on Calvin and that kind of thing. So what, what do you think when we got to the Reformation, did the Reformation just totally just revamp the way everybody read the Bible? Is that exaggerated? You know, it seems like Bart's drawing on Calvin. Calvin seemed to be doing a lot of theological interpretation. It wasn't kind of as, as flat as some people say it was. In, in fact, I would say that probably he was doing the best version of systematic and biblical theology together of just about maybe anybody of that time. What, what happened with the Reformation, do you think, just in your opinion, and how that uh, came into postmodernism and, and liberalism and all that? How did that all come through? And, and why do you think we should, as evangelicals, kind of recapture even Bart's vision at some level of, of how this goes? Well, of course, the answer to that question, to do it responsibly, would take far longer than this pon- we've podcast. Got, we've got four <laughs> hours, so just, just go for it. Um, it. We would run out of coffee, at least. I know that. <laughs> um, I think that Richard Muller, David Steinmetz, and scholars of the Reformation have shown that there is continuity as well as discontinuity between strands of late medieval biblical interpretation and Reformation biblical interpretation. So is there a new use of humanist tools? Yes, but there are pre-Protestant precursors to that. Um, Is there more attention to the literal sense and the way the words go? And um, is there at least articulated suspicion of allegorical reading? Yes. But again, you can see that as developing certain strands of late medieval moves. So the celebrate the Reformation as if it was this utterly new epic strand or the blame it all on the Reformation as if it's this utterly new epic strand, whether we're talking about biblical interpretation or whatever else, um, I think is historically overplayed. Um, And so does the Reformation serve as a kind of precursor to aspects of the Enlightenment? Of course it does. But often it serves as the kind of precursor where different sides are going to use different aspects of it as part of slogans um, for what the movement of history has then made it possible for them further to say. That doesn't mean that we should blame or celebrate Calvin or Luther for every unintended consequence uh, in the complicated flow of history. Um, I think Hans Frey actually celebrates Calvin as sort of his model reader on this score. Um, and I think Calvin is, in many respects, a model reader of someone who um, basically reads the text the way the words go, as the Word of God, reads particular passages as a responsible exegete and preacher, um, then in other ways tries to read canonically uh, in terms of um, providing theological aids to the larger flow of thought that will make sense. Um, of the interpretation of particular passages and particular issues. He, on my read, thematizes the human author most directly when he runs into certain kinds of interpretive questions or problems. So I don't think he sees himself in quite the Hirschian sense or the evangelical version of the Hirschian sense, right, where he's sort of got to go totally bottom up word to passage and and so on and so forth from the human author and then eventually maybe get to uh, a canonical divine author level. I think he's reading each text as from the canonical uh, divine author as the word of God through this human author and he's going to focus on the historical human author um, beyond the way the words go when he reaches certain kinds of interpretive tensions or questions or, or problems. As for Bart. That's a whole other conversation, but I think 
um, Bart and Bonhoeffer give us the terminology of theological hermeneutics yeah. or theological exegesis, doing something very particular in reaction to their German context. Um, then other people at various points pick it up. I don't think that using the terminology decades later means that we're obligated to do everything exactly um, like Bart to adhere to the terminology. And I, I think it's a mixed bag with Bart. He does, I think, have, and I even have Bible scholar friends who will say this to me, a kind of intuitive sense of what's really going on in the text in some unique ways. He anticipated certain trends even in the new perspective on Paul. Yeah, his Roman stuff. Is, exactly. Yeah. By by decades, you can view that as both a positive and a negative thing. <laughs> uh, I do. Um, so I, he taught something like 15 New Testament books early in his teaching career. So there's a sense in which I think he is a very biblical theologian. There's another sense in which I think he actually neglects the way the words go in some very important cases that would be very influential uh, were he to take them up for some of his most creative doctrinal moves, for instance, in the doctrine of election. I've been working on him in relation to Ephesians 1 recently for a particular project, and it's just interesting to me what he does and does not say with respect to the wording of Ephesians 1 mm. um, and how that affects his doctrine of election. So I think he is, in some respects, selectively exegetical in the technical sense, and I think that selectivity is problematic. So let's move into um, sort of your your book on your that's coming out introduction to evangelical theology i think that's a good bridge from from the problem yes with the Bart. marketing people will be delighted that that's you right they only they only paid me a little bit so uh but i thought this was funny i, I took a screenshot of your facebook post whenever you uh, posted about submitting this manuscript and you said i just sent the manuscript for introducing evangelical theology to baker academic depending on which of the four deadlines you use unrealistic realistic before house fire unrealistic after house fire or more realistic after house fire. It was only between two months and two years late, <laughs> which I thought was a great way to make light of a, the stereotype of scholars that they always turn everything in late. And the fact that you had a legitimate house fire that got in the way of all <laughs> yes. that. So what happened with the house fire? I remember you posting about it and, and everything. So what all happened there? Yes. I uh, came home from the creation projects annual summer conference uh, the day before father's day. And then on father's day afternoon, um, about two o'clock, it was a perfectly sunny day. Uh, the power went out in the house, trying to figure out what was going on. My daughter uh, and I were at home at the time. My wife was at the grocery store. And uh, all of a sudden, somebody was knocking at the front door. And uh, it was somebody rollerblading through the neighborhood. And they said, uh, looks like your garage is on fire. And uh, so I got my daughter. We went out of the house and looked around the corner. And indeed, the garage was on fire. Uh, apparently an electrical um, issue uh, with some kind of surge protector connected to the air conditioner unit or something, and it arced and uh, started the garage on fire. And by the time uh, the fire was done, the fire department got there very quickly and so forth. Um, we had a shell of a house, and so uh, with, with a fair bit of uh, smoke and water damage, um, on the inside, a lot of things in the main part of the house were at the memento level salvageable, but at the functional level, everything was pretty much done for. So we then moved out for uh, a little over seven months and uh, they gutted our house and uh, kept the frame and then 
did an entire rebuild. So you're back. So you're actually back in your old house. We're back in. Yes. But I guess you lost furniture. We lost furniture. Maybe most importantly, time, you lost sanity. your books. Did you lose a lot of books. <laughs> no, most of the books actually were okay. Um, they stopped the fire. Uh, you can see it in the. You could see it in the studs of the wall right behind my bookshelves. So they wow. stopped it about thirty seconds before. The books would have gone. Well, that's a small. I guess that's a small consolation, but it's a consolation, <laughs> yes, it right? Is. Yes. Uh, so yeah, tell me a little bit about that book you're introducing, Evangelical Theology. It is intended to be a mid-sized um, survey text uh, regarding Christian doctrine from an evangelical perspective. So a little smaller than some of the biggest ones, like Horton, Erickson, Grudem. Um, bigger than some of the smaller ones that have a kind of practical, introductory sort of focus. Um, trying to uh, be mid-sized, maybe a little bit bigger than something like Daniel Migliori's from Erdman's. Um, that mid-sized market has not had a lot of contenders from an evangelical perspective, and so it's usually I'm, the big ones that are just cut down hope, into smaller right, versions. I'm yeah. Hoping to fill that uh, gap, uh, trying to be very biblical in the way I go about it. So there is a distinct chapter on theological ethics that discusses the Ten Commandments. There's a distinct chapter on spiritual formation and theology that um, addresses the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer in a sustained way and how they have um, affected the uh, history of interpretation um, with um, an ethical and spiritual focus. The book is structured around the Nicene Creed. Um, so we have the Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, the classic pattern of catechesis yeah. structuring the book. But then um, it is written from a decidedly evangelical perspective. Um, so we try to provide biblical grounding for the doctrines, address the kinds of arguments that we evangelicals have amongst ourselves about myriad issues among our various traditions. And we try to do all that in, um, I suppose, 400-ish pages. So is this almost uh, your theological interpretation of Scripture put into dogmatic form? So sort of the, the outworking of, of that sort of project? I suppose that there are strands of that that are true, but it, it really is how would I teach a one-semester survey of Christian doctrine, yeah. which would have a fair bit of theological exegesis of some anchor passages. In addition to the ones I've mentioned, Isaiah 40 is really integral to how I do the Doctrine of God chapter, for instance. So I suppose it's me trying to um, stabilize and share uh, who I am as a mid-career theologian, and that's that's shaped by TIS rather overtly in some places, but not always. So this is this is a mid-career. This is not a magnum opus. What's your what's well, your, it may well be the magnum opus. But what, what would you hope your magnum opus is? <laughs> if that's not it, whatever what's, the, <laughs> whatever the next book is, right? <laughs> I think the most uh, important thing that I will have done as a theologian is to mentor students. Um, I th They will be the living letters, so to speak. Uh, in terms of writing, I think maybe the most important contribution I will make to the church is has already been made, and that would be editing a new edition of the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Um, Walter Elwell and all of his contributors provided a treasure trove of very readable um uh, accessible, uh, concise, evangelical theological content there that needed updating for a new generation. And so I'm satisfied that that project was a crucial thing that mm. I was called to do. I do hope to write um, the volume on Christology that I'm working on now for the new studies in dogmatics. 
I hope to write a couple of books on finitude and technology if my limitations don't get the best of me someday. Or if you don't get replaced by a robot before yeah, that. I suppose that could happen <laughs> too. Um, but those are in the aspirational category, and I think already the the last few years have shown us how crucial it is to get evangelical pastors and laity uh, the most solidly biblical theological resources we can, and so that's what we've been trying to do. So was that your idea to, to pitch the, the revision of the dictionary, or did they, they come to you and talk to you about that? How'd that all come about? Uh, it was a strange and tangled story. Um, they approached uh, Kevin Van Hooser and me about doing another dictionary after we had done the Dictionary for Theological Interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, Kevin designed a wonderful new theological dictionary in theory, but then we started to think through what it would take to do that in practice, and we knew that some other dictionaries were being developed. And so even finding contributors was going to be a challenge for a project of that scope. Uh, so, how, how much of the old one did you keep? Was, it, was there a lot so of... We, yeah, we cried uncle on that project, and then Baker came back to me and asked about the possibility yeah. of the EDT. So what we did there was the previous edition was about 1.3 million words. This edition is about 900,000 words. Okay. So we cut a lot of content, especially in the church history and historical theology areas where a lot of articles on uh, mid-level figures, we've kind of left people to go to Wikipedia and other <laughs> sources, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, we kept uh, out of the remaining content, um, about 150,000 words are brand new. Some of that is new topics. Some of that is new anchor articles on topics that we were sure needed um, a really, really current article. And then beyond that, the other, I guess that would be 750,000 words or so, are revised and updated versions of the prior articles. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, so what do you, you see that one, you're going to revise that one before you? Before you're done, because I feel like, what? how many versions was the old that one on? That depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you ask my wife, she will say no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably, was that the most time intensive, It took hardest seven thing you've years done? in the end. Wow. Uh, not every moment of those seven years was devoted exclusively to that project, but in one way or another, I was working on it for seven years. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good thought there about your wife, too, because I told my wife when I began my dissertation, I said, I promise you, I'm not going to put in the acknowledgments. Thank you to my family for sacrificing me. <laughs> For all these years, uh, three years into the project, I was uh, I held that very well. Now I have a year left, and I said, "Hey, uh, babe, do I have enough uh, equity built yes. up here that I because yes. I got to get this thing done?" Sometimes things yeah. have to get done. So, so how, how do you how do you personally kind of balance all that? All that you've got you've still got kids at home. I mean, you're still doing all yeah, that. Yeah, I have so. a ten year old daughter. Um, I think parenting really has changed uh, our lives. Uh, we're both academics. My wife teaches political science. When we first got married, we were able to keep our uh, both of our careers going on pretty high speed. Um, but when parenting came along, we had some commitments that we made and that in honoring those has lessened our travel, has lessened our scholarly production, has lessened some of the kinds of things that we take on or has altered the kinds of things we take on. Yeah. I'm chair of my daughter's classical Christian schools board. Yeah, I, see some, you, I see you sharing Facebook posts about that all the time. something You're... I never would have done had it not been for um, parenting. So I think in terms of even the dictionary, it's not that I was willing to sacrifice time with my wife and daughter. I think they just were tired of asking at the dinner table, <laughs> how did the dictionary go today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And seeing me sigh. Yeah. 
Yeah, my wife, yeah, she's she basically, she told me a little while back, she said, I feel like uh, I, sometimes I don't even know if you're doing it or not. And I was like, I think that's a good thing. Or that means I'm not actually getting anything done. I'm <laughs> right. <laughs> not yes. sure which one that is. Yes. But uh, it's going to have to ramp up for sure. But yeah, I feel, I feel like for me that the hard part is going to be making plenty of time for them. Part of my job is I travel a lot. I go to conferences. I go to seminaries. I go to churches. I do different things. So when I'm gone four or five days, the last thing I'm going to do has come home that weekend and be in front of my computer yes. at all. Yes. And so I think now I've got to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I, I can't make more time. I just got to figure out how to utilize time better while not having them feel it. But my wife, you know, she told me the other day, she said, you know what, like just, if we got to sacrifice nine months for you to get it done so we don't have to think about it ever again, she's like, I'm all, I'm game for that. So sometimes you do have to make those temporary project specific sacrifices. But I've also found that the last few years I have needed to learn from watching colleagues who are really good at using short bursts of time. Yeah. I'm terrible at that. I need to learn rather that. than needing long bursts of time. So we laugh about John Walton, but John is the most gracious person when you're in his office. He'll spend as much time. He'll be as focused on you as possible. And 30 seconds after you're out the door, you know, he's writing another book. And um, <laughs> A lost world of somewhere. Yes, Some exactly. lost world somewhere. And, uh, you know, that's been a model for me to grouse less about the time I don't have and to focus more on how to learn to be ready to use the time that I do have. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you mentioned your uh, last thing, you mentioned your new studies and dogmatics book on Christology. That's a great series so far. The ones yes. I've read so far, the Horton's justification just came out that massive two volume. Yes. I don't beast. think I have enough room in the luggage. <laughs> uh, so what do you, what do you hope to contribute? Uh, do you hope to contribute something kind of unique? Or are you hoping to just kind of summarize all of the best stuff? How, how do you see that going? What are you hoping to accomplish with that? Well, I hope uh, to contribute something that is more the size of the volumes besides Mike's. Yeah. yeah, um, Like Fred's. And, yeah. Yes. Um, for my sanity and everyone else's, but I understand why justification needed uh, the length of treatment there. Um, I suppose there would be two at this point, but I've got years to go in the process. I suppose there would be two uh, possible areas of novelty. One would be uh, I am taking a TIS-oriented approach so that each chapter will have an anchor text that I will expound and try to relate the dogmatic theses of that chapter to um, a particular text so that um, the volume might prepare pastors and others in a seminary uh, context or in a certain kind of um, undergraduate context, not only to know the major Christological concepts, but to see them as very definitely anchored in the church's enduring interaction with particular scripture texts so that they could feel like they would be able to preach on Christology or they would be able to refer instantaneously to at least one significant home-based biblical text in relation to a particular cluster of doctrinal ideas. So that structure may wind up being a bit uh, distinctive. The second thing, which I've hinted at uh, in a blog post in a couple of places, is that I am particularly interested in the significance of the virgin conception for Jesus's own self-identity. Okay. Um, If he knew himself to be um, born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in that conception in a distinctive way, if we see so much evidence in the New Testament that he understood his identity in Isaiahic terms, 
then it's striking to me that to this point, from what I've seen, the evangelical historical Jesus literature has made little to no mention of that aspect yeah. of Jesus's self-understanding. I think it's possible to say that even in or by virtue of his human nature, um, Jesus could have understood himself as in some sense divine in light of the Isaianic background as shaped by fulfillment of a certain kind of fulfillment of Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, leading into the material that I think we're more familiar with in yeah. recent scholarship from Isaiah 45 and 52 to 53 and so on. If we recover Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, um, then I think we don't necessarily have to be as tempted by certain kinds of canonic Christologies as some evangelicals okay. have been. Yeah, that was going, canonicism was going through my mind right. when you are saying so that. Right, so it may be that that argument will not work when I try to make it uh, in more detail, but at this point I'm convinced to head in that direction. Well, if you could do maybe a chapter two on Revelation texts and for me, just get those done in the next six months and send them to me beforehand. No, that'd be really I, helpful I if you could do that. You don't, as a dissertation writer, you don't want someone else to steal your thunder. So I'll let you have that territory. Okay, how about, I'll teach you something. How about yes, that? Yeah, I'll excellent. just send it all to you. That would be great. Well, Dan, thanks so much for doing this. I enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs>